0: Living Wisely, Living Well, February 7th. Keep in your heart a constant flowing conversation with God. Address him in the second person as you, not as he or she, not even in the nowadays stilted form thou. Share with him or her, your cosmic friend, every thought, every feeling of your heart. I had an interesting experience many, many years ago when I was first beginning the work that I've been doing now for decades, I had a, a, two friends actually who were both Episcopal priests and they it became part of Ananda and took Kriya initiation and they continued to, in their jobs as priests. They felt that their, their deeper understanding of Jesus actually qualified them even more to conti- continue in that role and they could reconcile in their own minds whatever relatively minor theological differences there were. And they invited me to be a a primary um, presenter at a small retreat that they were having with about 30 other clergymen, all Episcopal uh, clergy. This was 30-some years ago, so there was only one woman priest at that time and me. So we were the only two women there. The rest were men, which was incidental. But it was interesting because nowadays, if there was such a convention, it would probably be the majority women been very interesting shifts over a few decades. But in any case, I was very new at what I'm doing and my experience was not broad. I I was still somewhat sheltered in the life of Ananda, uh, which still living at Ananda Village, not yet moved to Silicon Valley where I've been for more than 30 years. And I was learning a lot of things. And so we were there for that retreat, nice men, all of them very nice men. And my two friends were wonderful souls um, I think they're probably both off the planet now. Time passes. Anyway, so we were there and the, the retreat took place on, from a Monday to a Wednesday because for clergy, the weekend is the working time, not the, not the time off. So Monday is everybody's day off. Um, and in fact, because in their tradition, they write their sermons. Saturday, you write your sermon. Sunday, you deliver it. And Monday is your day off before you start the whole cycle again. So everybody was feeling very relaxed, and you know, we were in this nice setting, and it was all going to be a lot of fun. And it came time, I think we convened in late morning, and it came time for lunch. And of course, we were going to say grace before lunch, and everybody in the room is a clergy person, so there's a lot of good-natured joking back and forth as to who's going to say grace. And there was laughter, and it was very, very good-natured. I enjoyed it all. And then all of a sudden, somebody starts, starts in like this. Dear Jesus, you know we are gathered in your name. I thought we were still joking. I really did. <clears throat> and I began to laugh because I thought, I thought it was just another you know another riff off the humor. And to, to my fortunately, I noticed quickly enough that this was, we were not joking and I sort of tried to turn my laugh into a cough you know, and tried to sink through the floor and just simply disappear. But it was like we'd been talking to each other, but now we were talking to Jesus. And we couldn't possibly address Jesus in anything that resembled the same tone of voice that we were using to each other. And it was like, from my experience, it was absolutely and totally bewildering. And for the rest of the time I was there, my friends joked later, it was really like English was not my first language. And so people would talk to me and ask me questions and they would watch because they knew me. They would watch me sort of like send it through some translation device. I had to understand what they were asking me and then I had to send my words back out again before I could put them and that was 100% exactly what was going on because of this very interesting difference that I observed between these very fine people and and me from the point of view of our spiritual approach. I was raised Jewish, but I was not a religious Jew. I, I read and learned the teachings of Christ from Yogananda in my first years at Ananda. I was, I was, I was not raised with any prejudice against Jesus, for which I am very grateful. So I was, I was totally captivated by the story of the life of Christ and still am. I did not consider it to be a betrayal of my Jewish heritage. I just felt that Judaism is a true religion and there are other true religions, and I just expanded into it once a heckler at some talk I gave tried to tell me that I had betrayed something by, you know, going on, you know, to becoming a self-realizationist and repudiating my heritage. I said, I haven't repudiated anything. I've taken everything that's true and I've just built a bigger and bigger picture from it. However, none of my spirituality came from an intellectual study of dogma or a theological anything at all. It came from a deep inner need to understand what caused suffering and what brought happiness. And everything that I accepted was because from the inside of me, I I could feel that it was a reality. And and interestingly, what happened was, you see, as I I studied self-realization, as I have studied self-realization over now 50 years, is that it resonates with what i already know and even but i haven't been able to clearly focus on or, or articulate and it's very interesting because from my earliest memories literally i was not a spiritual child i had no sense of god growing up i was a little surprised that my life turned out to be so focused you know on god in really simple words there was never i never anticipated that i was not a child who had those kinds of feelings. But I was a truth seeker, a a very profound truth seeker, and an aggressive truth seeker. And I didn't suffer fools gladly, even from a young age. I just always wanted to know what was really true. I remember, it was the fifth grade, I believe, and my teacher was teaching us about the nature of life. And for some reason, we were talking about other planets. Now, this would have happened, what would have been in the, 19, the late 1950s, so that just gives you a context. And she described, and I'm, I am so non-scientific, but she described the qualities of life. It had to do with carbon or oxygen or something like that. You know, I'm just like, that, that tells you how much I know. But she described what was required for life to exist. Then she said that these conditions do not exist on any other planet, and therefore, Earth is the only planet where there is life. I said, I said what seemed to me like the most obvious thing in the world to say. I said, Couldn't there be a life form that was based on other conditions? And she said, No. <laughs> and I thought, You don't know anything. How could you possibly make a statement like that? I didn't fight with her in the moment because it was, it was pointless to do so. But it's just like, don't be absurd. So everything about my commitment to spirituality, to being a disciple, to meditation, to everything I'm doing, even learning that God was what I was actually looking for, it all came from inside out. It was never imposed from the outside. So therefore, there was no way to have two different voices, because there's just me. There's just me searching for the truth. So when I'm talking to Jesus, or, or to Master, or to Divine Mother, because, you know, gender is not a part of the infinite, whatever it might be, it's just me. It's, I think of that wonderful little book that was popular at one time about this girl who had a relationship with God, and the title of the book was Mr. God, This is Anna, and that was sort of her prayer. That's how she would pray, Mr. God, and then she would talk to him, this is Anna talking to you. And that's the childlike spirit that is, that is the real relationship with the infinite. That's why we use words like Heavenly Father and Divine Mother. Because we're not trying to create distance. Distance is the exact opposite of what we want to create. When you think of a mother, now of course we're thinking of ideals, not everyone has this in their life, but everyone knows what that ideal looks like. And that the ideal of a perfect mother I mean, let's let's just, you know, bring in the qualities of what that means. I remember when I was, let's see, I would have been seven, my parents sent me to sleepaway camp. And seven was a little young to go to a sleepaway camp, but I was a very self-sufficient, mature child, and I loved it. But I was the youngest child in the whole camp. And I sort of was everybody's pet, because I was quite precocious, And so I I had all these big words, and I would assert my words. I mean, my mother said I was just adorable. And I can imagine, because I was a little runt of a thing, you know. So a a little runt with a big mouth and a big brain would have been really cute and, and probably quite ludicrous a lot of the time without knowing it. But the net result of my being the smallest was that I couldn't always do everything that everybody else could do. And one of the things that we had in our sleepaway camp was um, we wove potholders out of these sort of elast- elasticized bands, and we had this little loom. This was like a, a staple of day camp. Now again, I'm talking the 1950s. So um, we, had, we had this little loom, and the little loom had all- nails evenly spaced on both sides, like an eight-inch square and you would string these slightly elasticized bands one direction, then you would weave them across on the other. You know, it's a natural thing. And then you'd end up with a potholder that you could present to your parents. But somehow or another, whatever the dexterity required for that, it was a little more than a seven-year-old could manage. So when Parents' Visitors' Day came, I did not have any potholders. And we slept in bunk beds, and my best friend, I believe her name was Rainy, Rainy, above me, and we had just, they, they had these little nails on their bunk, and they hung potholders on them, the ones they'd made, so the parents could come and see the potholders. So she had a number of potholders, and I had none, which was, you know, an anguishing situation for me. I had none, and she had several. So I took some of hers, and I hung them on my nails. (laughs) I don't know what motivated me to do that, because If there was one principle in my household, and there were several very fine ones, obviously non-stealing was one and non-lying was the other one. I mean, these were just fundamentals. You breathe and you tell the truth. I mean, that's just how my family was. It wasn't brutally enforced, but it was just the way it was, and I adhered to it completely. But when the parents came to visit and my bunkmate Rainey noticed that I had taken some of her pottles and put them on my hook, she was not pleased with that, and accused me quite naturally of taking them. And I remember with tears in my eyes saying, "They fell, They fell. You know A little child just so ingenuous. I tried to persuade people that they had leapt off of her hooks and fallen onto mine. It was just awful. And of course, there I was, I was stealing and I was lying. And I was inadequate also because I had no pot holders for my parents. All of this is about Divine Mother. My mother was very dear. I had a very sweet mother. She loved being a mother. And I remember that my mother somehow understood the whole thing. And I was a little, small person. And I remember she just held me. I, that this is, it's, a very, it's a very moving memory for me, actually. Because I just remember that she just held me and she let me cry. She understood how disappointed I was that I wasn't able to give them something. She understood how driven I had been to break my own moral code because I was as honest as my parents. But she understood it all and she just held me and let me cry. And I have always been profoundly grateful to her. And I don't ever remember either of my parents criticizing me for doing that. And I also have been profoundly grateful for that because it was self evident that I understood. I believe my tears, I believe my tears were mostly because I was ashamed of myself. I've never actually put that thought out, but I think that's actually why I was crying. I was just ashamed of myself for having done something so dishonorable. Uh, Yes, I'm sure that's what it was. But that's Divine Mother, you see. It's like she doesn't have to correct us because our own hearts know and and that's the relationship we're trying to have it can be your father it can be your mother god can be your best friend you know whatever relationship works for you god can be your, your romantic lover whatever relationship makes you absolutely unafraid of being that there is no chance that you will be misunderstood there is not the slightest necessity to present yourself in any particular way that whatever you are is sufficient. No special voice is required. I heard a very moving story from a friend of mine whose parents were were Christian missionaries. And there's a very famous Christian missionary, his name is Frank Laubach, and he wrote a wonderful book called uh, Letters of a Modern Mystic which is highly recommended beautiful to read he went to the philippines or somewhere to convert people to christianity and quickly realized that that's not why he was there he was just there to help people to love god christianity didn't matter and he was completely isolated from his family and he began to practice the presence of god and he just and this is what his letters are about just practicing being in the company and Jesus was his Ishta Deva is the his chosen form of the divine, that's what Ishta Deva means. So it was with Jesus. And he was he kept the constant company of Jesus. And so my friend told me that her parents um, at the at the theological school that they were, Frank Laubach came as a special guest, and he led the whole group in prayer. And now we're going back specifically to this You know, the way of praying. And of course most people pray. Dear God, please be with us today, help us to know when I pray in the context of Ananda, Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Dearest Friend, Beloved God, then I name all the gurus. There's a certain flow to it. You can tell when it starts, you can tell when it ends. Frank Laubach, her parents said, He said this is the way they described it. His prayers were to simply make audible for a time the constant, silent conversation he was having inwardly with God. He would just suddenly articulate it so that everybody could hear it, and then he would stop. Isn't that perfect? And this is exactly what Swami is suggesting to us. Keep in your heart a constant, flowing conversation with God. Address him in the second person as you not as he or she, nor even in the nowadays stilted form, thou, share with him or her, your cosmic friend, every thought, every feeling of your heart. God bless you, my friends.